Hello again. Uh, the Old Testament reading this morning is from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. And uh, you can follow along with me if you like with your pew Bible. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. He will come with vengeance, with terrible recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. For waters shall break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of the jackals shall become a swamp. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there, and it shall be called the holy way. The unclean shall not travel on it, but it shall be for God's people. No traveler, not even fools, shall go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Our New Testament lesson today comes from the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing in our series here. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. I invite you to hear the word of the Lord. They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, don't even go into the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we do ask that now in this time, in this place, in these minutes, your spirit would rest upon us, and that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, because you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is an odd little episode for a lot of different reasons. Uh, 
I mean, it's quirky in its substance. It's quirky in that it's been included, and it's really quirky in where it's located. I mean, this is one of those passages that makes you think to yourself, hmm, I wonder what this is all about. Or maybe that's just me. I mean, let's begin with the quirky substance. The episode begins with several people bringing to Jesus a blind man. By itself, this isn't strange. I mean, we've read a number of times where people brought to him the sick, the blind, deaf, for healing. However, here, the friends, not the blind man, the friends beg Jesus to heal him. Nowhere in this episode do we, re- do we read that the man had any faith. Nowhere in this episode does the man indicate anything other than he's the passive recipient of the action. Jesus healed him, and we don't know that the man ever believed in Jesus. We don't know that he ever thanked him or that in any way he responded to him. I mean, maybe he did respond, maybe he didn't. Mark doesn't tell us. What do we do with that? And then look at how Jesus acted here. Mark wrote that Jesus took the man by the hand and led him out of the village. Why? I mean, when the friends of the paralytic dug through the roof and lowered the man to Jesus, he healed him right in front of the crowd. So why not here? Was he just taking him away from the curious onlookers? I mean, that would make sense because he had just refused to give the Pharisees a sign from heaven. And giving a blind man sight would qualify as fulfillment of the promises made in Isaiah 35 that Darren just read. What happens in the presence of God? The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. So it might have been that Jesus wanted to avoid the curious who were waiting for a sign, as if Jesus were some sort of magician doing tricks for the entertainment of the crowd. But by by leading the blind man out of the village, it also seems that Jesus took the blind man away from the friends who had brought him to Jesus, the friends who had faith. What do we do with that? And then there's the healing itself. Jesus heals the man in segments. First time, he puts saliva on the man's eyes. Does that mean he spit in his face? Right? Or did he do the calic thing I remember from my youth when mothers... Mm, mm, mm. Right? Anybody with me? Anybody? Okay. All right. When he had done that, Jesus asked the man, Can you see anything? Why? I mean, was Jesus not certain the miracle had taken? Was he uncertain of the effect? Was he making a point? When the man said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking, Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. This time, Mark wrote, that Jesus looked intently 
and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Was Jesus distracted the first time? Disinterested? No? Or what's the significance of Jesus looking intently the second time? And why was there no response from the man when he could see everything clearly? And then finally, Jesus sent the man to his home, but not through the village where his friends had brought him. What's that about? I mean, think about it. If the man was blind and took him outside the village, how's the man know where to go? He hadn't previously navigated by sight. How would he know what he was seeing? What were the landmarks? What direction he was supposed to head? I mean, what do we do to that? So you, you see, the, the substance of this miracle is kind of quirky. That it's included at all in the Gospel of Mark is quirky. For months, we've been reading episode after episode of these incredible miracles and these expressions of power. I mean, Jesus revealed the authority and the ability to do anything he wanted. I mean, just remember, in chapter 1, he delivered a man from an unclean spirit. He healed Simon's mother-in-law, many others in Capernaum. And he chose to heal a leper by putting his hand on him. Chapter 2, he healed the paralytic. Chapter 3, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, healed a man with a withered hand. And he healed many others with diseases, commanded unclean spirits to keep quiet, and they did. Chapter 4, after, healing the, uh, after teaching the parables, Jesus and the disciples get in the boat. And when the storm on the sea overwhelms the disciples, they wake Jesus up and he says, Peace, be still. And there's calm. Chapter 5, he healed the demoniac who had terrorized the Gentile community. He then healed a woman suffering 12 years from a hemorrhage, raised the 12-year-old girl from the dead. Chapter 6, he fed the 5,000, sent the disciples out on a boat, and then walked out after them. When they got to shore, people recognized him, rushed to bring their sick, and he healed all who touched him. Chapter 7, he delivered the demon, uh, from demonic possession the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman who had bantered with him, demonstrating the greater faith she had and the greater understanding she had than the disciples. And he also cured a Gentile deaf man. And then in chapter 8, he's just finished miraculously feeding 4,000. And now, now in today's verses... He swings and misses for the first time? Why would Mark include this at all? I mean, Mark didn't describe every miracle Jesus did, so including this one seems like an unforced error in an otherwise spectacular run. What do we do with that? So the substance is quirky. That it's included is quirky. And the location of it in the gospel is quirky. I mean, this episode immediately precedes a key moment in the gospel. The moment that Mark has been building towards since the very beginning, Peter's confession. 
Everything has been building to create this awe, this wonder and worship when the answer to the question, who is this, is finally revealed. Why would Mark position this stumble immediately preceding this pivotal moment in his narrative? I mean, it would have made more sense if it's going to be included at all at the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he's first engaging um, the, the crowds. There it would have been an understandable moment of growth. But now, immediately before Peter's confession, what do we do with that? So, I spent a few minutes here trying to convince you that this episode should not have been included in the Bible, at least not where it is, but it might be good to try and figure out why Mark did include it and what he was trying to convey to his first readers and why that's important for us today. Mark included this episode because the blind man stands as a representative of the disciples. They were not the religious elite when Jesus called them to come and follow. They were guys living normal lives, with normal occupations and normal families, and normal day-to-day -day concerns. They were not actively looking at the big picture. I mean, they were aware of the scriptures. They knew a Messiah had been promised in the law of Moses and by the prophets, but generations had passed. Messiah hadn't shown. Several pretenders had come and gone. But, you know, they're still under Roman occupation. They're under Roman control. I mean, they're like the blind man. They did what they could in the conditions in which they found themselves. They're limited, not expecting change, and they had no vision of how things could or would be different. Well, Jesus called them and led them away from everything they knew. He took them out of their villages, and he began to travel with them, showing them remarkable things as he taught them about the kingdom of God. Even so, as Mark has made clear, particularly in contrast to that Syrophoenician woman after the feeding of the 4,000, they didn't see Jesus clearly. They saw the power, they saw the miracles, they kept asking, who is this? But to this point, in Mark's narrative, the twelve are just on this incredible ride to the top. They're watching messianic promises fulfilled. They're seeing crowds upon crowds. Even the security function that they're playing, trying to keep space for Jesus, was a reflection of how good they had it by being close to Jesus. And these miraculous feelings were a good example of the disciples' limited perception. They saw the numbers, but they didn't see the people. They saw forms, but not individuals. After both of those feeding miracles, Mark made a point of describing the failure of the disciples to see and understand what was being revealed. As we go forward from here in this gospel, the second part of the healing of the blind man represents that second part of the gospel, where Jesus' identity, his power, and the mystery of the kingdom of heaven embodied in the person of Jesus is 
fully revealed. And the intensity of Jesus' look represented his laser focus on that obedient walk of suffering to the cross. So Mark included this episode at this point to prepare his readers for what's going to happen from here forward. Now, if it seems like Mark was being kind of hard on the disciples for not seeing clearly, we really shouldn't be surprised. I mean, Jesus' question to the blind man, can you see anything? is really just a restatement of the question he had just posed to the disciples. Remember after the feeding of the 4,000? Why are you talking about bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? ears and fail to hear. And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken bread did you have? They say 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets of broken pieces did you have? They said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? How could they have been with Jesus all this time? Watched all the miracles he performed and not understand who he was or, as importantly, what his coming meant. See, the question Jesus asked the blind man was the question Mark was posing to his first readers. Can you see anything? And the question Jesus asked the blind man is the question Mark poses to you and me. Can you see anything? Can we? Seeing requires us to look. Seeing also requires us to look with some discernment about what it is we will observe. Are we looking with eyes of faith? Are we simply keeping our eyes open? We all look at the world with a perception. Whether it's actual eyesight or just personal experience, we all approach the world, our position in it, and our understanding of how things work with a perception. Things we prioritize, the choices we make, the way we relate with one another, it's all based on that perception. The scribes and the Pharisees looked with the perception that Jesus was a fraud. He had to be a fraud. He didn't look like the Messiah they expected, and he didn't play by their rules. They looked and they looked and they looked to find the flaw that they were certain would expose Jesus. I mean, his healing on the Sabbath, his eating with tax collectors and sinners, his, his disregard for the tradition of the elders, well, you know, to them, that justified in their own minds and their hard hearts their rejection of Jesus. It blinded them from seeing what God was doing through Jesus in their midst. Disciples look to Jesus as a miracle worker and a teacher. I mean, he's clearly a prophet. His coming is good news because it meant good things for Israel, right? Maybe this was the beginning of the end of the Roman occupation. That'd be nice. I mean, people really were done with this government. Maybe this was the end of Herod's rule. Boy, people didn't like Herod. Maybe this is the end of the scribes and the Pharisees' authority in the temple. Man, they're a condescending lot. 
Maybe the kingdom of God that Jesus was proclaiming would include them, the disciples in positions of power. And boy, they would do things better than those in power right now. I can see people, but they look like trees walking. What can we see? What are we looking for? Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was teaching about the kingdom and demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. Do we see it? Do we see it and do we believe it? And by believe, I mean, do we put our trust and our hope in it? Because seeing the kingdom of God is very different, very different than seeing what the world tells us. Our world is working very hard to convince us that the kingdom of God is a nice myth. It's a fairy tale that we're welcome to believe as long as we keep it to ourselves We don't actually orient our decision-making accordingly. Saw online this past week a picture of the vice president meeting with the task force leading the federal government's response to the coronavirus. They were opening their meeting in prayer. And the online response to the photograph is an object lesson in the difference in perspectives. Hemant Mehta, who writes for Pathios.com's Friendly Atheist, wrote... It's not a joke when people say these Republicans are trying to stop a virus with prayer. What else did anyone expect, he wrote? Science? Reason? Something sensible? Of course not. If this virus truly becomes a pandemic, we're at the mercy of people delusional enough to think their pleas to God will fix the problem. The same God who presumably created the virus, at least in their minds, will somehow make sure it hurts only a handful of Americans and tons of Chinese people. The friendly atheist. Dr. Angela Rasmussen, a virologist at Columbia University, also criticized, I have yet to attend a scientific meeting that begins in prayer. Thomas Chatterton Williams, a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, shared the photo on Twitter and commented that we are so screwed. The world mocks. The world shames. The world turns down. The world seeks hope in human rationality alone, excluding the possibility of God's grace and mercy. The world trusts in human rationality to solve problems, create a better life. How's that going? Election seasons are great for illustrating this principle, right? During election season, we're asked to believe in candidates. Then we hear politicians tearing down and destroying each other. And followers rejoice when their candidate mocks or disparages another. We also hear candidates making promises they have no power or authority to fulfill or or create. They accuse others of lying when they peddle plans that are just as empty. And they're just as empty because they can only hope they will be able to persuade enough others to vote with them and for them that they can get something that represents a compromise. By the way, this is true on all sides. 
I think it's fair to say of every political party and persuasion that they overpromise and underdeliver. Now, to be sure, politicians are necessary and not even a necessary evil. They are necessary. Christians believe that God has instituted and ordained governing authorities for our benefit here and now. But in this country, we've developed the notion that the government, not God, is ultimately responsible for the health and welfare of the people. And we blind ourselves to the truth that government is limited. To the extent that it has authority and resources, it can fulfill some functions, but it cannot fulfill all. But do we see those limitations? Or do we continue to put our hope in governing authorities to make the world right for us? Well, if not governing authorities, then we're encouraged to believe in science. Look at this coronavirus. We may not have a cure or vaccine for it yet, but we trust that scientists, our best people, are working on it and are going to figure something out. To be sure, we need scientists. Scientists are awesome in discovering how and why things take place. They're just not positioned, trained, or equipped to prove who is responsible for how things are in creation. Scientists are able to explain much about creation, but not everything. Can we see those limitations? Or do we continue to put our hope in science to make the world right for us? We need scientists, but we need to keep them in proper perspective. And I could go on through the same litany with education, with fame, with money, with institutions, with power. The world encourages us to believe in the ultimate virtue and importance of these things to the exclusion of God. Friends, the kingdom of God looks very different than what the world presents. Why? Because missing, what's missing in all of the worldly perceptions is one fundamental characteristic, love, love. If we can see, if we can see, we recognize that governing authorities, scientists, educators, and all the rest can only point to the one who is the source, the example, the giver of love, and that's Jesus Christ. It is only in Christ that we can see. It is only in Christ that we do see because there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Somebody once wrote, you know, if I speak in tongues of mortals and angels but don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all my possessions, if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Love never ends, he wrote then. 
As for prophecies, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part, but when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, or reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. Pay attention here. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Friends, if we see Jesus, we see love. And that changes everything. We move from despair and limitation to hope and promise. Shortcomings of this broken existence are real, but they're not eternal and they're not dispositive. If we see him clearly, we move from being responsible for our own righteousness and our own salvation, which we cannot maintain or, or affect, and we move to a place where we trust the one who is able. So brothers and sisters in Christ, open your eyes. Look and see. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. See Jesus. Repent and believe the good news. Amen. Friends, go out from this place with eyes open to see where God is at move and at work. And go out from this place with tongues loosed to tell what you see. Be Christ's ambassadors, be Christ's witnesses. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, rest, remain, and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>